Heavenly Father, you are faithful beyond comprehension, Father. Faithful to those who deserve nothing. Faithful to those who are unfaithful at times. Uh, Faithful, Father, to those uh, who were your enemy. Faithful, Father, in ways we can't imagine as you took your son to the cross for our sake. We thank you, Father, for the small display of faithfulness that you've shown us in just having a room for 13 years and being able to teach on a Wednesday night consistently. And we know, Father, that we'll have new opportunities to teach in new locations, but that doesn't diminish our thankfulness, Father, for what we have received and for all that it has meant for those who've been here and for many others who have listened to what has been recorded here. And I pray, Father, that above all the things we might learn in this room over those years, we might take away one lesson above all, that um, there are small ways in which you can do great things. And that we don't have to seek, Father, for burning bushes of great displays and uh, powerful, impressive uh, events. We, we just have to do what you ask us to do, Father. Just do it faithfully. And just be, be about the business that you give us. And to do it, Father, without drawing attention to ourselves. And just let you use it. And, Father, this is a, a place that reminds me of that. Thank you, Father, for that, for that lesson and for all the lessons you've let me teach here. And, Father, tonight we finish this book. We pray we finish it with the same strength and interest that we began it, that no word in this book, Father, is less important to you. And we know that, so we care about each one. We want to listen carefully to what you teach us tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul's greatest written work, probably the most important New Testament epistle, comes to an end tonight in a peculiar fashion. Paul spent eight chapters walking us down the Roman road, which was his careful explanation of the way to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he spent another three chapters revealing the mystery of God's plan for his people Israel. And then after that, he taught nearly four more chapters on how the church is to walk in the light of that salvation. So big, weighty, theological things that we've been studying. And Paul's covered a lot of ground in that time. He's tackled many of the toughest topics of the faith. And so when you have that already having been written, what kind of ending do you tack on to a letter that's got such an impressive bounty of teaching in it? Well, surprisingly, you end with a fundraising appeal. And perhaps that makes some sense in this case, because the enormity of what Paul has just given to the church in Rome certainly justifies his expectation of gratitude on their part, and he leverages that for a fundraising appeal as he ends the letter. We ended last week in chapter 15, verse 13, Paul wrapping up the formal teaching in the letter. And so now in verse 14, Paul turns to addressing his readers very carefully, very diplomatically, calling on them to respond to what he has given them in this letter. I'm going to read the beginnings of what we'll do tonight. Chapter 15, verse 14, Paul says, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. But I've written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Well, you see in verse 14 how Paul has turned very clearly to addressing his audience. He says, now concerning you. And what follows after that is a very diplomatic and yet a very convicting appeal to this church in Rome for support for Paul's future missionary journeys. And to understand how and why Paul makes this appeal, you need to remember the background I gave you at the outset of this letter. By the time of 
this letter, as Paul wrote this letter, he was the foremost apostle in the church. There wasn't even a close second. He had traveled extensively throughout the Roman Empire. He was known for evangelizing, for teaching. He had established or he had discipled churches in major Roman cities like Antioch and Corinth and Ephesus. He had written many letters to other churches around Asia Minor. Each of those letters was treated as a precious object by the faithful when they received it. It would be shared among other churches. But then there was a church in Rome. Rome was the most important city in the known world at that time, and therefore the church in Rome carried itself with a certain degree of pride for where it existed. What's more, this church had not been founded by any apostle, which gave the leadership of this church an even greater sense of accomplishment for what they had achieved. And yet, here's the great Apostle Paul, who has never condescended to visit the city of Rome. His shadow has never darkened the doorstep of the church in Rome. He's been everywhere else, even to minor cities that are of very little importance in the empire. And he's even been in the neighborhood, relatively speaking, nearby enough that you might think he'd drop in. But in all that time, he had never stopped. More than that, he had never even written to the church up to this point. So by the time he sits down to write this letter to Rome, the church leadership in Rome is feeling a little bit overlooked, a little bit unappreciated. And yet, Paul needs their help. He needs to make an appeal to these people for financial support because he has a plan that will take him through the city onto distant places where he will need money to get there. And so that's why Paul went to the effort to write such an impressive letter to the city of Rome. No doubt, He knew, by the time he reached chapter 15, that he had blown them away with an intellectual feast of spiritual truth, uplifting them, humbling them at the same time. This is far beyond anything he had written to any other church. And, of course, that's the modern view of the letter of Romans as well. No one would dispute that the letter of Romans is the high point of the epistles. So having given them something now that is honoring to them, they now could perhaps return that honor to him. That was the thinking. Paul, in a sense, had saved the best for them, and now he was looking for them to respond. And interestingly, Paul has organized his letter in such a way so that now he is ending his teaching, having just addressed the issue of the equality of Gentiles within the body. That was the last thing we taught at the beginning of chapter 15, right? It was against legalism, but in that sense, it was for Gentiles being treated as equal without having adopted all the Jewish traditions. And that organization in Paul's teaching was strategic, I think, because it allows him now to go directly into his appeal for support to reach more Gentiles, and that appeal is going before a church run by Jews. He now is in a position, having impressed them, having reminded them of the need to think generously toward Gentiles in the church, he's now in a position to make an appeal. The area he wants their help in reaching is one that would have been particularly difficult to get to without significant resources, and that is Spain, the same place you and I know by that name today. It was at the outskirts of the empire in Paul's day, the opposite side of the empire from Judea. So for Paul to travel that far, he's going to need money. And not coincidentally, Rome lies directly in the path between Judea and Spain. And therefore, Paul writes to the Romans, first to educate them, and maybe secondly to impress them, And in so doing, to be able to make a heartfelt appeal to them. And that appeal will be for the Jewish leadership in this Roman church to give generously to Paul's mission to reach the Gentiles in Spain. That's a tough sell. 
under any circumstances, but it's even more so when the church is not on your side. So as we return to chapter 15, you start to see Paul's smart strategy unfolding in what he says. Now, this is not flattery. He is not saying things that are disingenuous, but that doesn't mean he isn't diplomatic with a strategy. Paul's argument comes in three parts. If you write on your Bible, you can kind of outline in your text where these parts are, and you'll see them more clearly. The first part of his argument is in verses 14 through 21 of the chapter. In that part, he's going to remind the church of the nobility of his mission, that is, of reaching Gentiles and his faithfulness and having carried out that mission. And then the second part is in verses 22 to 29. Paul presents the Roman church with his appeal for their partnership with him. It's a very classic missionary support appeal. And then in verses 30 through 33... He explains the value of his mission, that is, the future plans that he has, and the opportunity for the Romans to be involved in his work with him by virtue of their giving to that work. Very traditional missionary fundraising approach. In verses 14 through 16, as I've read, Paul begins his defense of his mission, starting diplomatically by mentioning the good things he's heard of this church. He says, I know this church, I know you, I know you're full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and able to admonish others in the truth that you know. This is a notable statement on Paul's part. It's a very important thing that he said this, because remember, as he's never visited Rome, you know, the suggestion is he doesn't know this church. And what Paul says is, I may not have been there, but it doesn't mean I don't have connections to you, and it doesn't mean I don't know something about what's going on in your city. I want you to take a moment, if you can, just to glance at chapter 16, the first part of it, and you'll notice that Paul's going to spend considerable time in that chapter greeting acquaintances that are in the city. That's the longest such list in his epistles. He's making a point. He's making a point that I have connections in this city. I have people I know, even though I've never visited there. Probably these are people who came out of the city and visited him at some point, or they're people he knows through other means. And Paul begins by saying two other things. Let's look at each one of these individually. He says, first, you are full of goodness. That refers to their moral excellence, their character as a church. They were the light in the midst of the headquarters of paganism for the known world. They were a light in the darkness in the center of this pagan culture. They were a beacon of godliness, resisting the evil culture so they could transform it by their truth. This is a testimony. Paul's echoing it in Scripture. They were a church that held to the Scripture. They lived it out. They were truly godly in the situation they were in. This is quite a remarkable testimony for a church that had not had its foundations built by apostles or been nurtured by apostles. That's a, that says a lot about the character of the leadership. And then likewise, Paul says, I know you're also full of knowledge, which just refers to their understanding of biblical truth. This is a largely self-taught church. No apostle had made it to Rome, as far as we know. They didn't have the benefit of the personal instruction that apostles brought when they came into a town. Nevertheless, they're learning scripture, understanding Christian doctrine, even before the canon was complete. That's a pretty remarkable testimony. Out of that learning, Paul says, they knew to admonish believers to live out what they were learning. That's what admonish means. Admonish, it's a verbal way of compelling behavior. This isn't a church that just was content with filling heads with knowledge. They expected the followers of Jesus Christ who lived in that city to comport in their behavior with what they were learning. This is truly a spiritually mature church, as far as we can tell. And Paul then adds in verse 15, Nevertheless, he said, I love the way he joins these two thoughts. He says, despite me knowing all that about you, nevertheless, I wrote boldly to you, which is to say, I covered important doctrinal truth in great detail, but I didn't do it with the intent to offend you. 
Because Paul knew that there was a potential for a church that's this spiritually mature to be offended, at, at least in a human sense, in their pride of their heart, for having necessitated such a thorough explanation of the gospel. I mean, can you imagine if someone sat you down and said, I really need to explain the gospel to you. Wouldn't a part of you say, what, you don't think I understand this already? For the most part, that's how we might respond to that. So he says to them, I, I had to write to you boldly, despite the fact that I know these things about you. Yeah, I'm not saying you didn't understand your own salvation. But here's the fact that I, I think is, is probably clouded over in this text, the thing that we have to probably acknowledge. Though he wrote boldly to them, I'm guessing they learned a lot. In other words, though they knew what they knew, I doubt they knew what he wrote. He says he wrote boldly to them on some points. <laughs> As if to imply, well, you know, these are things you probably already knew. Just covering it again in case, you know, chapters 1 through 12, just in case you didn't know that stuff. I just, I think that's a diplomatic way. To some group you don't know, you just treat them lightly. That is to say, you don't bruise their egos any more than you have to. Reminding them that, you know, I had to write to you boldly because that's my mission. And that's how he ends. He says, I had a God-given mission to do these things, particularly to reach Gentiles. In verse 16, he explains that he ministered as a priest for the purpose of pleasing God by converting Gentiles. Remember, a priest is an intercessor. We don't need priests to intercede between us and God. That doesn't mean God doesn't have intercessors. No one man directs our connection to God. We find him directly through Christ. But in the way of the role of an intercessor, that is someone who brings two people together, of connecting people to God, we are all priests, the Bible says. The priesthood of the believer. We are the intercessors to the unbeliever. So we are the connection to God the Father through our example, our testimony. In that sense, we are interceding. We're bringing people to God. Now, once they find Christ, they don't need us. That's the distinction. But Paul says, I'm a priest in that sense. I'm finding all the Gentiles who need to know God and don't know him, who then he says, in turn, will be sanctified by the Holy Spirit, which is a way of him saying, after they find God, they don't need me. That's the heart of the mission of the church. That's Paul's mission. Obviously, it continues on today as our mission. But Paul's beings are very specific here. He's saying, I and I alone within the early church had this focused desire to reach Gentiles. No other apostle was given that mission specifically. And so when you have that kind of a mission, and it's so specific to you, what do you do to obey God? You have to focus on your mission. In other words, you can't say, I know I'm supposed to reach Gentiles, but there's also some Jews here. Let's spend some time with them. Paul did that on occasion, but he didn't lose sight of his mission because no one else was given his mission. And Paul wants the church in Rome to understand that his absence from them was ordained as a part of that mission. Look what he says in verse 17. He says, therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Verse 20, and thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But, as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. All right, so Paul says at the beginning of that passage, verse 17, that in his work he took every opportunity to boast in the things that God was doing through him, but he didn't presume to boast about those things as if they were his own accomplishments. This is Paul's preface to boasting. Okay, I'm not saying he's boasting in the wrong sense. I'm saying he's boasting in God. But as he moves into a boasting period, he always is very careful. And he does this elsewhere, as you know, in, in 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. He's always very careful to say, all right, I'm about to go on a boasting trip here, but before I do that, I need you to understand what I'm boasting about. 
It's not me. It's what God is doing through me. But it's still important that they understand his accomplishments so that they can understand his rationale for not having visited. He prefaces it saying, this is all something God's doing through me. And then he says, what has the Lord been doing through me? He says, over the years I have spent ministering. God has used me to reach Gentiles with the gospel. And there has resulted a tremendous response of obedience among those Gentiles, both in word and in deed. In other words, Gentiles, people who were pagan, who knew nothing about Judaism whatsoever, try to take yourself out of the Christian culture of the West that we live in today. Put yourself in a part of the world where they have no concept of Jesus, Israel, the temple, anything about that. Never heard of it in their entire life, couldn't care less about it. And one guy shows up preaching that stuff, and there's a huge response. Huge response, confessing Christ, embracing Jesus as Messiah, showing obedience to the gospel by their word, that is, by their confession. But more than that, turning from their pagan lifestyles and from the immorality that it provoked so that they would obey the commands of Christ. That's the deed part. That's a remarkable achievement. And it's one that few, if any, in Israel could ever have imagined or predicted. In fact, it's so unexpected that even the apostles themselves had trouble embracing it for a while. As Paul says in Ephesians, It was literally the breaking down of the temple wall that separated the Jew and the Gentile. Paul goes on to say that Gentile response came by the power of the Spirit in conjunction with great signs and wonders that were done by the apostles. But that itself is a validation of God. In other words, if God's using an apostle to do signs and wonders, which is a part of how he was bringing the Gentiles into faith, well, then it's evidence that God intended to get to Gentiles, right? He wouldn't give apostles supernatural power to reach Gentiles if he didn't want to reach Gentiles. The very fact that God was equipping these men in such a way is further validation that it's in God's will that Gentiles would get reached. That's Paul's point in this. So it's another point of emphasis for this church that you cannot say that Gentiles don't have a part to play in what God is doing in the body of Christ. As the Spirit manifested these wonders, the apostles themselves were forced to accept the true confessions. You know, in the book of Acts, there's that moment where they get together and they say, well, it looks like God is granting a repentance to the Gentiles after all. You know, they're kind of shocked, but they got to they got to acknowledge it, because here's the Spirit doing the same thing with him that he did with the Jews. And so Paul reminds his readers of that. And he says, so, in light of the Lord's remarkable saving work among Gentiles, and in light of the mission I was given to reach that population, I made it my goal to only go to places of Gentiles that had not yet been reached. That makes perfect sense. I mean, if you take those two earlier facts, you put them together, you only have one logical conclusion. God is self-evidently trying to reach Gentiles. He's told me that's my mission. If I do it, he's going to use it. Why would I go to a city in which there's already people reaching Gentiles? That would seem like I've sort of wasted the opportunity I have. I can go anywhere. So Paul is convinced that he needs to go only in places where there isn't already a work taking place. In fact, that's in keeping with the rough definition of the word apostle. It means one sent with a message, as in going to unreached areas, going places that no one else has gone. That's what made their mission somewhat unique. Apostles, in fact, generally speaking, did not build on top of anybody else's work. There were exceptions. 1 Corinthians 3 is Paul's famous quote about, I plant, Apollos waters, etc. But that's more the exception than the rule. The rule generally was these guys spread out and went different places. And when they were too close together for too long... God would make them kind of have an argument so that they would go in different places on their own anyway, right? It was the, the pattern was to use these guys independently. Now, Paul says he had managed to open these doors, the doors among Gentiles, to receive the gospel. He had managed to do this from, he says, Jerusalem 
to as far as Illyricum, which was a Roman province. If you want to know where that is on the map, that's the ancient name for the present-day Dalmatian coast of the Adriatic Sea. So that's where you would play from the south. You find Greece, and as you go up the coast, you get Albania, Montenegro, Bosnia, and Croatia. That's the place he went. But if you look on a map, what's immediately across the Adriatic Sea from those places? Rome. Italy today, but Rome. So that's a short boat ride to this church. And so what Paul's saying is, yeah, I've been moving your way. I've been coming. I've been going to places that need me. But my mission is to focus on those areas. After all, why would Paul go so far out of his way, that is to go all the way over to Rome, to reach a well-established, spiritually mature, knowledgeable church? I'm sure they'd appreciate it, and I know he could have done things that would have helped them, but in light of his mission, why would he have done that? That's his argument in verses 20 through 21. He's saying, I set my mind on skipping over places where there was already work going on, where the church was formed or growing, so that I could do work that no one else could do. Now, we know Paul did stop at times in other cities where the church already existed, places like Ephesus. But when he did it, it was because those cities were located on the way that Paul was already going, so he would actually have had to go out of his way to avoid them. That would have made no sense. So he just went through them because it was the logical path. And as he did, of course, he would stop and he would encourage and he would teach. He didn't just kind of walk through with a cloak over his head and avoid talking to people, right? He's not trying not to meet people. But what he was saying is, as I move about, I have to be strategic about where I'm going. And, and to go to Rome at that stage took him so far out of the way of anywhere else he needed to go, it would have been wasting time and effort for something that wasn't his main mission. Paul says he was there to fulfill the word of Isaiah, which is bringing good news to those who had no knowledge of God. And he was telling of Jesus to those who had not previously heard of God, much less the coming Messiah. Up till this point, you know, he maps it very carefully from Jerusalem to Illyricum, which is sort of a straight line going west. But up until that point, it wouldn't have taken him to Rome. He had no reason to go to Rome, except now he does. Which is why Paul says in verse 22, For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while... I'm going to stop there for a second. It's just kind of an awkward sentence construction in English. But what Paul says in verse 22 is, okay, so these are my reasons for why I have not come to see you so far. It's not out of a lack of interest in you. It's not because I don't like you. It's not because I'm indifferent. I have a mission. In fact, the very things you respect about me, I would imagine he might say, the very things that you want me to be there for are the things that are keeping me away. That is, I follow God, I serve God, I, I do as he's called me to do. But now, he adds, it's about to change. Now I will be coming your way. But he's still sticking to his mission. It's not like his rules changed or his priorities changed. It's not like, okay, now I'm going to put the mission aside. He's saying, because the mission takes me to you, I'm coming to you. And what he wants, of course, is to pass through Rome to regions west of Rome, to Spain. He says, and because I've long desired to see you, which is sincere, I'm sure, now I will make a point to come through Rome. I love what he says there. He says, I've exhausted opportunities. I have nowhere else to go in this region. That's quite a remarkable testimony, and I know it's tempting to see that as hyperbole, because that's probably how we would say it, but I don't think Paul was prone to that, not in Scripture. We know Paul's not the only person who's evangelizing in this time, and I don't think he's taking credit for the gospel being everywhere. That's not his point. But he is also the most prolific evangelist of his time, by far. 
In fact, here's something to consider. Paul is sitting in Corinth as he writes this. And based on what we know in the book of Acts, he's preparing to return to Jerusalem at the conclusion of his third missionary journey. By that point, this man has been converted to the faith barely 20 years. Barely 20 years. And in those two decades of life as a Christian, Paul has personally evangelized half the known world on foot. At this point in time, he has written nearly half the books of the New Testament. And he has founded churches in at least 14 major cities and towns. All of that in 20 years. How much have we done for the Christ in 20 years? Now, obviously, that question is unfair because we can only accomplish what the Lord determines to do through us, and we're not apostles. But I think there's still something to consider there because undoubtedly, when you do look back on your life at any period of time since coming to faith, I think we can all agree there's probably more we could have done if our mind was on that. In other words, if we carried the same spirit Paul did in this letter, which is to say, I don't even go to Rome unless it's on my path. I have one purpose for life right now, and it's to evangelize people who don't know Christ and won't hear him otherwise, and every decision I make is based on that goal. If we all thought like that, we probably wouldn't live where we're living. We probably wouldn't have the job or income that we have. We probably wouldn't have as many friends, or maybe we wouldn't be as healthy. Or I'm not saying we'd all suffer. I'm just saying our lives would be different, wouldn't they? That's, that's not something to go home and, and mourn about. I think it's just a, a challenge, though. Moving incrementally in the direction of Paul is probably going to help us all eternally. In any event, Paul's legacy doesn't establish our goal in ministry. I don't want you to run out of here thinking you've got to found 14 churches in the next 20 years or write half the New Testament again. It just challenges us to increase our effort and our focus a little bit. At this point, verse 24, Paul says, here's my new plan. It's Spain. At that point, he unveiled the, the full banner and the five-by-eight cards that have the pictures of Spain on them. And that's when he said, new project, Spain, right? The new frontier for apostolic ministry. And Rome will put me on the path there. So time has come to visit. Spain is uh, a long way from Rome, actually. It's almost as far from Rome to Spain, to the outskirts of Spain, as it was to go back to Judea. Uh, and so he needs a lot of support. You know, money makes the world go around then just as much as it does now. Uh, Paul's not working. And every day he's walking, he's going maybe 20, 30 miles. And he's got to eat three meals. He's got to stay somewhere every night. He's got to pay for shoes. He's got to you know, pay for clothing. Those things add up. You don't get a chance to stop at the ATM you know, three days into the walk. You have to leave with everything you're going to get, for the most part, to take you all the way there and to establish a church long enough that once it's established, they might then start to support you at some point. That's a long time. He probably was guessing a year or more of support time. I'm just throwing a number out, but it had to be substantial enough that he could get something going. And that's a fair amount of money. And when you put that goal in front of a group of people who don't even know you personally, that's a, that's a hard sell in human terms. Paul says he hopes to see them in passing through so they can help him. I love his honesty. Just puts it out there up front. Simple, bold appeal, honest, unashamed. And I think there's no better way to make a case to raise money for ministry. You know, you don't need to pander. People in mission work joke about the fact that there's two sets of photos that you use, fundraising photos and recruiting photos. The recruiting photos have people on beaches with Mai Tais, and it's, let's come evangelize Thailand. And the fundraising pictures have kids living in squalor in Thailand and say, we need your money for Thailand. And, you know, there's a little bit of, of cynicism in that. But it's just the way we tend to think about how we have to motivate people, and it, it probably helps. But Paul's point is, if you care about the mission of the church, here's what you would do for me right now. 
because I'm on the mission and the mission needs your help. And I think what you'll get in that response are the people God is turning in their heart to do the work of ministry through their giving. And what you won't get are the people who would have given out of the wrong motive. And here's an interesting thought. Though you might say, well, at least I got the money one way or the other, so I can do ministry. But if in the process of taking someone's money through means that provoke their pride rather than their spiritual interest, you haven't helped them eternally. It shouldn't be about the money because God has all the money in the world, right? So the goal should be I'm ministering to the giver even as I'm asking them to help minister through me to someone else. And so if I prompt you into giving out of something less than genuine motives, I haven't helped you. I haven't ministered to you. Paul says, so I'm coming to Rome, and as I go through there, I'll get your help. But historically, we know Paul didn't go straight to Rome as he wrote this. He's sitting in Corinth. He's not that far from Rome at this point. Even though he's sitting there, maybe a few days' journey from Rome, he's going to take a major detour. He knew he was going to do it. The book of Acts records that he did it. Here's what he says in verse 25. He says, But now I am going to Jerusalem, serving the saints. For Macedonia and Acacia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so. And they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, well, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I finish this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So Paul says, I'm coming, but first I need to go back to Jerusalem. It's kind of the opposite direction of where he's saying he wants to go. And take note of why he's going. This is more diplomacy on his part. You'll see the strategy here. It's quite interesting. He says, I've got to go back because I've got to deliver this contribution from Gentile churches to the poor in the Jerusalem Jewish church back home. You know, your friends and buddies back in the Jerusalem church. I've got a bunch of Gentiles that just are dying to give them money. And I need to take it back there for them. The church in Jerusalem was an especially poor church largely made so by their faith in jesus christ because if you took jesus as your messiah in that city you were a pariah and without the support of the jewish community it would be nearly impossible to survive you wouldn't get work you couldn't live with your family it was just a tough situation so they really depended on support from other churches and paul worked hard to raise support for them wherever he went and as he persuaded gentile churches as he planted them as he persuaded them to help fund the needs of the jews back in the church in jerusalem while it was still there He liked to be the one to deliver it back. And I don't think there's a pride issue there. I think what he was doing, you may know this from the book of Acts, he takes representatives from each of those cities with him. So each church has their representation in that traveling team. And Paul's there with them, like a mother hen. And they all come into the city, and I think there was an opportunity for Paul in that way to minister to leaders within the church, see the church leaders themselves be ministered to by those who received the gifts and could be thanking them for that. And... Paul sort of knitting together the Gentiles and the Jews in that respect by his leadership. So support from other churches in the region was a huge issue. And he makes mention, I think, of this intention to go back to Jerusalem because he wants to make the larger point that you're probably already getting, which is in verse 27, these Gentile churches were just so happy to give to the Jewish church out of gratitude for what they had received spiritually from Israel. He's alluding, of course, to the importance of Israel, the Jewish people, the Jewish covenants, the Jewish Messiah, everything that God has done through Israel to bring us salvation. So as he taught earlier in the letter, Israel's covenant relationship with the Lord is the root into which we are grafted. So the Gentile church is indebted to the Jewish people for their spiritual things. And so how can they object to offering material things in in response? I mean, the material things you're giving back are far less valuable than the spiritual things they gave you. 
Not that the Jews were responsible, so to speak, but in the sense of how God sees them, as he uses them. So look at the wisdom of his appeal. He's about to ask a church in Rome who's run by Jewish leadership to fund his work to reach Gentiles. And right before he does that, or as he does that, he says, oh, I have this trip going on soon where Gentiles are going to be supporting the Jews in Jerusalem. So as the Jews are being blessed by Gentiles, uh, maybe you'd like to think about Jewish church helping me reach Gentiles as well. In other words, repay what they're doing. He says in verses 28 through 29 that as he comes back this way, stopping in Rome, he will expect to be sent on to Spain by the Roman church. Again, very bold, very forthright. I expect your support. Notice he adds that when he comes, he will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I think what he's saying is, I'm going to be a blessing to you as Christ uses me, bestowing upon you my teaching, my leadership, and all the rest. He's not an immodest man here, not to compliment himself. He's just saying, this is what the Lord does through me. He's acknowledging the Lord's using of him in this role as an apostle. So here's the deal that he's offering the Roman church. I'm going to come to the church so that I bless you by my mission, and you're going to bless me in my mission. So I'm going to bless you in your mission. You're going to bless me in my mission. It's all about the mission. The mission of the church in Rome is to reach the people of the Roman city with the gospel and to disciple those in the city. When Paul comes, I'm going to come with the fullness of Christ. I'm going to make you better at your mission. And when I leave, you're going to have funded me in the work I do in my mission of apostolically reaching new people. So it's all about the mission. I'm not interested in being wealthy. Speaking as Paul, I'm not interested in being wealthy. I'm not here just for a visit. This isn't about me getting your attention. This isn't about us just having fellowship. It's about the mission. And I love that about Paul. Everything was always about the mission. But that's not antithetical to fellowship. That's true fellowship. Fellowshipping in the, in the mission is true fellowship. It's not antithetical to courtesy or, or concern for other people. I mean, those are the ways the mission actually works itself out in the, in the lives of the people. But what it does do is it does away with superficiality and personal interest. And so Paul says, think spiritually and maturely about what we're doing and we'll both be on the same page. Therefore, he turns to making his specific request for support. Verse 30, look where he begins. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So he's asked for financial support. He's essentially said, I expect your help. But he doesn't dwell on that. The financial support he needs will only come if he makes it to the city, right? Again, no ATM, no PayPal. If they are not there to physically hand him money, he won't get money. And so he says, I urge you to pray that I'll make it there. So the prayer support could start immediately. They didn't have to have him in his presence. They could pray for him right now. And it's even more powerful than financial support. So Paul didn't urge the church to support him financially. He just made a brief mention of that. What he urged them to do was to pray for him. And he refers to their prayers on behalf of his ministry work as a striving together with him. I know that's often what people say. We need your support, prayer support, financial support, so you can strive together with us. In absolute spiritual truth, praying for another ministry is a striving with that ministry. Because it's a joining with another person in what they do. God will accomplish more through two members of the body, united in that way, than he will by two individuals who are working apart from one another by themselves. And even though one, like Paul, was using his hands and feet, while the other is using prayer, 
They are still joined spiritually, and in eternity we will finally get to understand how the Lord used those times we strived with people in prayer for His glory. We'll get those stories, don't worry. If you haven't had them on this side of heaven, you'll get them on the other side. You'll find out how your prayer life was affecting somebody else. Paul says both are striving. Now you can tell how Paul does it. You take a long, dangerous journey by foot to some far-reaching place, that's striving, no doubt. But prayers for Paul were equally striving. In fact, the Greek word for strive is actually a compound word in Greek. It's made up from two words. It's made up from the words together and fighting. Together and fighting. So it conveys the idea of fighting together. If you've ever tried to pray for someone else's ministry work on a continual basis, then you know full well that it's striving. You're fighting with the other person against a common enemy. And just as the enemy is resisting their work in the field, malaria, financial difficulties, you know, cars that break down, tribal unrest, government intervention, right? They're striving against all that stuff. The enemy is going to resist your work on your knees just as much because it's just as much a part of the work. Both of you will be striving if you're doing it at all. So as you consider your opportunities to support ministry, remember there's two kinds of support, as you probably knew. One is material, the other is spiritual. One is easy. Giving money is easy. But praying? Praying is striving, in my experience. One occurs in a moment, the other is continuous. One has a delayed effect, the other has an immediate effect. One enables the work in the sense of funding it, but the other enables its success. And you know, if you ever hear those appeals that say, we need your prayer and we need your money, and you kind of see the prayer part of it is simply a setup for the money request, um, maybe some mean it that way, but that's not how the Bible looks at it. In fact, I would tell people all the time, if you're writing us checks without prayer, take some of the money back and spend time in prayer. If that helps you do it better. <laughs> you know, uh, the money is great, but the prayer support right now would be better. Interestingly, Paul did return to Rome directly after visiting Jerusalem, like he said he would. He just doesn't go the way he planned. He goes back to Rome in chains. The Jews in Jerusalem conspired to have Paul arrested by Roman authorities while he was there. As a Roman citizen, he appealed to be tried by Caesar, which was a Roman right. And that led Rome then to transport Paul back to Rome. The Roman soldiers, in other words, transported Paul back to Rome to see the Caesar for free. So he got free transportation as a result. He spent two years in house arrest while he awaited trial. And from there, he writes the prison epistles that we know. And he ministered to the city in Rome. So they they got a lot of his time, a lot more of his time than they probably expected to get. And according to reliable early church records, Paul did eventually leave Rome with their support and indeed went to Spain for a time. Later, after several years in Spain, he returned to Rome. This time he was arrested and tried and ultimately executed by Nero. All of that is according to church tradition. Regardless of how much of that may be accurate, nevertheless, uh, his legacy was complete by the time he made it to Rome. He had preached from Jerusalem, probably to Spain, at least to Rome. Countless men and women in the kingdom had either directly or indirectly come to faith due to Paul and his writings. So in a sense, those in Rome who funded his travel and who prayed for him were striving with Paul for all of those gains as well. And at this point, you have a letter essentially complete. We're at the end of 15, and as you already noticed, probably 16 is a letter primarily of greetings. We're going to read the chapter in chunks. I'll do my best not to butcher the names. Along the way, I'll I'll just consider a few historical facts. There's one little section of teaching near the end, and then we'll have finished the letter. So starting in chapter 16, verse 1, Paul says, I commend you to our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Centria. 
that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself also has been a helper of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also, greet the church that is in their house. Greet Apennatus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. I'd have your name immortalized for that in Scripture. That's kind of fun, isn't it? Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junias, my fellow kingsmen and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. Astacus, my beloved. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kingsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who had worked hard in the Lord, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Ansecretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. And greet Philologus and Julia and Nereus and his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Anyone looking for new kids' names? You've got a lot there you can choose from. It's obviously a chapter of personal thoughts, greetings. He mentions 36 names in this chapter. Eight are with Paul, it says, in Corinth. The rest are those he are, he's greeting in Rome. So some are with him, some are in Rome. Altogether, he mentions 27 men and eight women. He also mentioned two households and three house churches. Most of the names are Gentile which would reflect the growing population of Gentiles in the church. It is interesting that Paul could name so many people in Rome, and yet he hasn't been there. And so, as I mentioned earlier, he's doing this in part to affirm his connection to the church. Also, I think he made these personal contacts in ministry. Many of them ventured out from Rome, probably met him in other towns, maybe in Corinth or elsewhere, and he just wants to greet them. He's, he's a guy who enjoys fellowshipping. He's a loving individual, as you would expect. As Wearsby observed, Paul was a friend maker as well as a soul winner. The first name Paul mentions, Phoebe, is the one who carries this letter to Rome from Corinth, from where Paul wrote it. So she was the one who delivered it. She may have been a deaconess. The word in Greek that he uses here to describe her is diakonos, which is where we get the word deacon from. It also means servant or minister. Uh, There are women deacons in the church. That is a permissible role. It illustrates from the beginning that women played an important and even a prominent role in the church as they could. Uh, The list then from verse 3 through 16 has Latin and Greek names. Uh, Some might have been Jews who had taken on Greek names, like Saul became Paul. Some of these may have been Jews. We don't know. The name Priscilla, it's actually the same as Priscilla, uh, although he spells it differently here. And Aquila met Paul in Corinth after they fled Rome when Claudius ordered the Jews to leave Rome. So they were Jews who had fled the city of Rome, ended up in Corinth, met Paul there. They were also tent makers. And as Paul says, they risked their lives for him. Paul eventually takes them to Ephesus with him, where they also were partnered with Apollos for a time. Later, they moved back to Rome. And once they got back to Rome, they started a church in their home there. And you also read about them being back in Ephesus with Timothy at one point. So these two people really got sold out for ministry and were moving around like Paul was, often helping him or people he administered to. Then you have the first convert in Asia. That would have been in the city of Ephesus. 
the reference in verse 7 to apostles who were in Christ before Paul. That's, did you catch that? It's kind of a striking statement, isn't it? Notice these men are called apostles, yet they are not among the twelve, nor are they mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. So one of two things is true here. Either Paul is using the term in a general sense, not in the specific sense, meaning they didn't have the office of apostle. They were, ap- they were simply acting in apostolic ways, going out to unreached areas. Or he meant that in the specific sense, and this is further evidence that Christ named apostles that we don't necessarily see in the Gospels. I mean, Barnabas is an example of that. James is an example of that, the brother of Jesus. So these are apostles that were named after Jesus was resurrected, Paul being another example of that. So these might have been some more. Looking at verse 10, Paul greets not Aristobulus, but he greets the man's household. What it probably means is he's greeting the slaves, not the man himself. The slaves were Christian. The man wasn't. And slaves had no identity outside the household. So he's simply saying to those slaves in that household, I greet you. Rufus may have been the son of Simon the Cyrene who carried Christ's cross. There's some early church writing that connects that name to Simon of Cyrene. And apparently his mother was like a mother to Paul at some point. That's what most people think Paul meant when he said a mother to me. And in verse 14, the brethren... That reference is probably to another house church. Greet the brethren. Greet another house church. Verse 17, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Interestingly, Paul interrupts his greetings here just for a second. He wants to briefly address false teachers. Now, he doesn't get into it very much, obviously. In verse uh, 17, he just says, I want you to keep a watchful eye for these guys. You're going to know them because they cause dissensions. They create hindrances to obedience to the word. That's a really good example, by the way, of the fruit of the tree metaphor that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 12, right? Good fruit can't come from a bad tree. Bad fruit can't come from a good tree. What he's saying is, you may not immediately know if a teaching is true or not, or if a teacher is true or not. But if what they're spreading are lies from the enemy, the enemy's fingerprints are going to be all over it. And it'll show up soon enough. Its effect will be negative on holiness. It'll be negative on holiness. It'll be negative on obedience. It'll be negative on unity. People will not be edified by its introduction. They will be harmed. They'll move away from sound doctrine. Even if you can't put your finger on why it's bad, just look at what it does. If it's from God, if it's true to the text, people will be edified, people will be built up. It doesn't mean that you won't have arguments or disagreements, but the net effect will be a positive impact on the body of Christ because that's what the Word of God is there for. If it's the opposite, and you see a lot of things that are troubling and the people who are accepting the teaching, it's evidence that the fruit is bad. And I think you need to be discerning. Paul asked the church to take note of this pattern, allowing it to inform their understanding of who is spreading the teaching. Men who have this impact on the church, he says, are not slaves of Christ, they're slaves of sin, which is a way of saying they are unbelievers. So we're not talking about here about believers who just mistakenly teach bad things. We're talking about unbelievers intentionally manipulating the Word of God to deceive unsuspecting people in the body of Christ. Smooth speech, that means they're they're well-spoken, They ingratiate themselves with flattery, which is just a subtle form of lying. In other words, their style covers for their lack of substance. You know, the more boring I am, I think the more legitimate you should know my teaching to be. 
So false teachers essentially offer the church candy-coated poison. That's their technique. And in that way, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Now, elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul and other writers, particularly Jude, spend a lot of time breaking down the methodology, the, the modus operandi of bad teachers so that you really can see it coming. For now, Paul just wants to issue this warning in passing, and I suspect he does this because of when in history this is happening. It's, it's a time in which false teachers were particularly troubling the church. They were following Paul around. Uh, this is mid-century. So mid-first century saw a particularly strong rise in false teaching centered on Judaism and the law, Judaizers. So I think Paul may be concerned because he says, your strength and your success is known everywhere. But I think what he's saying is, those false teachers are going to get wind of that too, and they're going to see an opportunity. And so Paul says, I want to get ahead of them. I want you to be aware they're coming. Verse 20, he says, the enemy is not going to win this fight. He's destined to be crushed under Satan's feet. So what I think he's saying is, even though the enemy may sow some confusion today, he's not going to change the end result. Not for anyone else, not for him. Nevertheless, Paul calls on the church to be wise in what is good and innocent of what is evil. If you don't remember anything else about tonight, take this away. It's a little nugget that will help you. It's a powerful statement about how you avoid the enemy's schemes. Be wise in what is good. That is, be understanding of what is in Scripture. Understand the Bible. Have a good understanding of proper things so that you're in a position to identify lies. You know, the old adage that's been circulated now so often, you've probably heard it many times, of the teller who knows to find a counterfeit bill because they've been trained on the real thing. That's how you get to know the lie, right? So if you are good at knowing Scripture, not just corners of it, but if you really get a sense of it from front to back, the enemy will have a much harder time deceiving you. Much harder time. So start there. And then secondly, remain innocent of evil. Because if you voluntarily engage in sin... You open yourselves to condemnation and self-destruction. And the enemy can exploit that. He loves that. It's like giving it to him on a platter. So any of your misdeeds that could compromise your witness or distract you from your service or wrap you up into some kind of drama that you you can't get out from under, well, he didn't have to deceive you at that point. You pretty much threw the, the knife into your own chest for him. But he'll twist it. So you remain informed by knowing the scripture so you can't be lied to and you stay away from obvious trouble in your own life so that you don't give him any leverage how many pastors have fallen because they made a couple of bad really bad choices and that became a skeleton in their closet and it was brought to light and it needed to be but the point is that 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 moment what they were doing couldn't continue they were they were taken down it wasn't a lie it was a sin So remain informed of the truth, committed to walking in obedience, and the enemy has a lot harder job ahead of him with you. You know what's left at that point, by the way, for him? If you're living by the truth and know it, and you're walking in obedience, generally speaking, of course, then what he has left to do is tempt you. That's all he has. Now, temptation can be severe, and it can be very hard to avoid, but it's now totally up to you. Don't take the temptation. Say no to the temptation, and you are outside his reach. Resist the enemy, and he flees. Easier said than done, I know, but that's the formula. Finally, Paul ends his great letter with a final salutation. Let's just finish for the night. 21, Paul says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And so does Lucius and Jason and Sospiter, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. And Quartus, the brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. That part's in brackets in my Bible because it's not in some of the early manuscripts, so it's questionably whether it was in the letter originally. Verse 25, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, 
according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ. Be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. So this is a list of names who worked with Paul in Corinth. This is him and his gang, if you will, saying goodbye to the church in, in Rome. Timothy was working in Ephesus, but he would spend time with Paul in Corinth. You probably know a little bit about their relationship. The name Lucius, that's probably Luke, because Luke was with Paul at this point, And he wrote, as you know, a gospel and the book of Acts. Jason was likely Paul's host, as he called him, in Thessalonica. Sosipater, Sosipater, I don't know how you'd say it. Um, Saucy. Traveled with Paul. Traveled with Paul on his third missionary journey. Tertius penned, as you hear, penned the words of this epistle. And I, every time I hear of the guy that pens one of Paul's letters, how would you like to have had that accomplishment on your resume? But more than that, how would you like, can you imagine what this guy was thinking as he heard these words just pour out of Paul's mouth? And he's trying to write it like, where are you getting this? How are you getting this? You know, can you imagine the experience of just writing it down as it's coming out of his mouth? And, and the way they wrote, they did not back up. You know, they didn't go back, 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 back. Hold on, I missed. You know, it's pretty much as it's coming. And if you weren't good at the job, you didn't have the job because people like Paul didn't want to have to stop and wait for you. They're talking. Yeah, it's kind of shorthand in that sense. So he's just like, Paul, this is really good. <laughs> it's also interesting to remember the various problems uh, that were happening in the Corinthian church at the time he wrote this. If you remember reading the letter, you know this church is a church with a lot of issues. And yet Paul's staying in that city. While he's there trying to solve those problems, he pens this work, right? Which is certainly an example of turning all things to good, isn't it? Erastus was the city treasurer of Ephesus. We know that because his name was found in 1929 on the marble pavement in the city of Corinth. The pavement read this way, Erastus, in return for his appointment as commissioner for public works, laid this pavement at his own expense. Paul ends with a powerful doxology. It combines thoughts and and phrases from earlier letters and from Romans. I won't belabor it, but Paul trusted that the Lord was able to establish the Roman church, he says, according to the gospel that Paul delivered as preached by Jesus Christ, And he says he trusted the Lord would make this true and meaningful to them. So in other words, I think what Paul's saying is, I know I just wrote you something that's pretty hard to understand. I'm trusting the Lord will establish this in you. He didn't worry about providing a commentary to his own letter. He trusted that God would explain it. Paul goes on in verse 25 to explain that the message he has delivered was a mystery. Beforehand, a mystery in Scripture is any truth that God keeps hidden through past ages so that he can reveal it in the New Testament age. Paul had revealed several mysteries in his letters, including one in this letter regarding Israel's future salvation and their hardening in the time being. So it's a pretty high privilege for a church to be told personally of a mystery. Remember, before he wrote Romans, this mystery wasn't known to anyone. The first people to read about it were the Roman church. They, they got the mystery revealed first. It's a privilege. And in verse 26, he says, God will make it plain to you, manifest to you, and to the nations. Uh, I love that about Paul. Paul had a self-awareness that I think we don't give him enough credit for. He knew he was writing scripture. He knew what he was writing with Scripture because he says, What I have written to you, God will make manifest to you and to all nations. That's not self-importance. That's him recognizing he just wrote something that's going to go everywhere because God's using him for that purpose. He knew the importance of what he was sharing. And then lastly, he says these truths were revealed to everyone so that they would lead to what? This letter ends with a call to obedience. Obedience of faith. That's the way you end a letter like this, I think. Obedience. Because you've learned a lot of things, and you've probably been challenged by a few of them. We've all expanded our appreciation for God's grace. 
Now the question is, what do we do differently because we sat through this study? What steps of obedience are now within your reach because you've learned something? To our wise God and Father through the Son, Jesus Christ, be all the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, teach us to obey as much as you've taught us to understand. Encourage us, Father, to share what we've learned. Bring us into your presence in a day to come, Father, having made the most of the things you've shared with us, Father. Thank you for the time we've spent in this room, for all those who, through their time and money, have made it possible, Father. Thank you for blessing us in those things. May it not stop here, though, Father. Send us on to somewhere new that we may continue in what you've called us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.